Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Our USB drives ain't working on that computer, so I can't do PowerPoint or anything up there. It's been like that for a long time. But uh, for tonight, I thought I'd come down here, and I might scribble on this board here and there. Uh, maybe not just touch your sense of hearing, but maybe your sense of sight, and maybe something will stick. Maybe some glue or something magical will happen, and something will stick. Amen. This evening, Ephesians chapter number 1. Amen. We're going to start with verse number 2. And we're just hoping that everything is going well for uh, the young people. I've seen pictures of the rooms. Nice rooms, I'm telling you right now. Nice, nice accommodations. If I was not going to be home, I'd like to stay somewhere like that. Uh, and, and, and wasn't going to have turkey for Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, Ephesians 1. And this is my first year in many years I have been home on uh, Thanksgiving. So it's good to be uh, here with you folks. Ephesians 1, verse number 2 starting. I'm going to read a few verses of Scripture. Amen. The Bible says, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of the children of Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved amen tonight I want to speak my subject matter along this line this is part two but he hath chosen us in him he hath chosen us in him. Can we pray together right now? God would help us. Lord, I love you. I appreciate you. God, we need you this evening. Open up our mind and our understanding. Help me, Lord, to convey, Lord Jesus, your word tonight, Lord, through the teaching of your word. God, that you would able, Lord, to enhance us, God, with knowledge. Lord, let your anointing, God, even touch us, Lord, by virtue of doing this, God. Let something, Lord, be sold to our spirit, Lord, into our lives. God, that would help, Lord, lead and direct us. I pray, oh God, Lord, tonight, open up the understanding of those that would be sitting on the pew this evening. God, you're able to minister to them and also, Lord, strengthen them, Lord, in their life and spirit. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. The church say amen. Amen. You may be seated this evening. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Just a side note, continue to remember, remember Sister Brenda Trout. She'll be having surgery on Tuesday. Amen. I'm sure she's, you know, you say looking forward, but I'm sure she is looking forward to that. So let's, let's remember her. But we've already got the bases covered since she's not going to be able to eat Thanksgiving. Mike said that he would take care of that and just eat her share. So... Uh, I have great confidence that he'll do just that. It's a big burden that someone's got to take care of it. Amen. Uh, he hath chosen us in him. Verse number two, if you could put that back up for me, uh, Sister McGee. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember 13, and I, again, I'm just going to scribble on here just for the purpose of scribbling, all right? Uh, but 13 epistles, 13 epistles. I'm doing this for the seniors. Large print for you right there. Uh, 13 of the epistles 
written by the Apostle Paul. And he oftentimes began his salutation or his greeting to uh, whatever church or individual that he was writing to commonly just like he did to the church at Ephesus. He commonly would say grace and peace uh, extended that to whatever church or individual that he may be writing to. That was true for about 10 of the 13. There were the three epistles that he wrote, which was First and Second Timothy. And I'm writing this for anybody that liked maybe to take notes. Whenever I was a little boy to age eight years old, after I got the Holy Ghost, mom and dad would let me sit on the front pew, and I took notes whenever I was a little boy from Pastor Sizemore on the front pew. Didn't know exactly what it all meant, but I took notes anyway. Amen. It just, just made me just feel like I was really doing something. Except these three epistles right here, they, the, the, the salutation is this. He says, grace, mercy, grace, mercy, and peace, which is different from what he would in, in the other ten. But the reason being these three epistles right here are what's known as the pastoral, the pastoral epistles, pastoral epistles, because whenever he wrote First and Second Timothy, he was writing to Timothy, who was the pastor of the Ephesian church at that time. Whenever he was writing to, to Titus, he was a pastor, a minister that was over a church. And by divine design, God knew and used Paul to greet these men who were pastors and ministers over a church that he knew that they weren't just going to need grace and peace. They were going to need some mercy in their life. And that's not a joke. That's absolutely true. Writing, writing to the pastors of the church, he knew in addition to the grace and the peace that they were going to need, they were going to need some mercy. You'll look in the book of Ephesians, and at different times, the apostle Paul talks of Jesus Christ, or sometimes he calls it Christ Jesus. You might see the two flip. One time Jesus Christ, and another time I believe if you look at verse number one, he refers to Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus, both, both in the same verse, flipping it around, which is no big deal, but just for information purposes. Jesus, Jesus is his name, all right? Jesus is his name. Christ is his office. Christ is his office. Christ uh, also in the Greek, Christos, which means the anointed one. That's his office. To, to put your mind to be able to wrap around that, uh, it would kind of like be saying, as bad as I hate to say it, President Obama. All right? Uh, President is the office, but Obama is his name. And so many times whenever you see it just even referring to Christ or Jesus, we know if we were to say right now, well, the president, because we know who's currently serving is that, we know we're talking about Obama because that's who's the president. Well, any time that they would just mention Christ, everybody knows who he's talking about because there's not going to be, he's not serving a four-year tenure. <laughs> he's serving for eternity. So we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the name of Jesus Christ. So whether it's Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, it's one and the same uh, individual. Now, something I do want to point out in verse number two that's still up there. If you'll notice, it says, <clears throat> uh, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's important to note right away because we see a lot of this type of talk or verbiage in the, in the epistle to Ephesians and other epistles. And that is Paul, and just, just put a disclaimer here right now, Paul is not alluding to, listen, two persons in a Godhead that the, the Trinitarians may try to bring to your attention. He's not, he's not referring to two, two persons in a Godhead. Uh, grace and peace is not be a, being extended from God our Father and from some other person, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
All right, Paul has a really good grasp on the Godhead. Uh, my wife, are you still up there, dear? Or did you? Yeah, okay. I'm so far down that you're headless. Uh, first, first Timothy three sixteen uh, gives us a little bit of his grasp, uh, and he says, "And without controversy, great Paul writing is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit." seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, if there's, that's a good verse for just commit to memory. Another good verse to commit to memory is 2 Chronicles 2, or 5 rather, 19. To wit that God, you've heard me say these things several times, I bring them up all times. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, Paul, Paul was pretty certain. He, he was certain on the Godhead. He had the revelation on his road uh, to Damascus. He had the revelation truly of who God was, that Jesus was God. But that, that's not a difficulty, if I may back, that's not a difficulty for the Trinitarians, all right? Because they believe that God is in Christ. They do. They believe that God is in, in Christ. Absolutely. So God being manifested in the flesh that we read of in 1 Timothy 3.16, they have no problem with that. They believe God was manifested in the flesh. They also believe that to it that God was in Christ, they believe that. Trinitarians absolutely believe that. Whenever they talk about uh, the Trinitarian doctrine, um, they uh, are talking about many times they believe in one God. I know a lot of people say, well, they believe in three gods. No, they believe in one God in three persons. Three, indiv three individual persons who are co-equal and co-eternal. All right? They believe in one God that's in three persons, that there's three individual persons. Well, we only believe in that there's one person, that's Jesus Christ. They, they believe either that, they say it sometimes like this, one God in three persons or three persons in one God. They kind of describe it many times, and you might see maybe I did do on that beforehand, Sarah, I don't know. But sometimes they describe their, their theology like this, that this triangle is God. And at one corner is the Father, at the another is the Son, and so I don't have to write it all out, HG. Guess what that stands for? Holy Ghost. So they believe one God is in the three, but all these are, look, this is really artistic right here. All of these are persons, okay? <laughs> Each one of these is a, is a person. There's a God, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. One God that's in three persons. The reason why then you hear people a lot of times refer to, well, they believe in three gods because a person is a distinct individual, uh, autonomous all by themselves. So that's the reason why maybe on this side, the faith say, well, you believe in three gods because how can you have three people without having three gods? Is everybody with me? Are you with me? All right, well, I... Uh, that's another reason why we got this board here tonight. So, so with that being said, they have no problem with that. So they would try to explain some things like that. But what they do not believe is that the Father is the Son. I should have left that up there, huh? You can still see it vaguely. <laughs> or that the Son is the Holy Ghost. Or that the Holy Ghost is the Father. They do not believe that. But with that, I have a problem then with John 10.30. I don't have a problem with it, I, I back it. But John 10.30, it's Jesus speaking says, I and my Father are one. Well, also the Bible says in John 14, verse number 9, Jesus said unto him, this is Jesus again, Jesus said unto him, have I been, remember, let me back up, Philip came to the Lord, he said, Lord, uh, you know, show us the Father, 
Show us the Father talking to Jesus. Show us the Father and it sufficeth us. We'll be satisfied. Jesus says, have I been, uh, Jesus said to him, have I been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me, me who? Jesus. Jesus is speaking. He that has seen me, you looking at me, guess what? Father. Who's Jesus though? Scripture declares, son of God. Now there's something important to realize. They talk the terminology, God the son. God the son is nowhere in Scripture. Do a reference and a concordance. You can run it in your Bible. You can touch in the little phrase for the exact phrase, God the Son. It will not come up in the entirety of your Bible. There is no such terminology as God the Son, only the Son of God. Amen. All right. Well, with that being said, if you look back at verse 2, Sister McGee, Ephesians chapter number 1, verse number 2, God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That word and right there in Scripture, that word they and is the Greek word, this is really great, kai. I think it's K-I-K-A-I. Let me look my notes here just to make sure that I'm not telling you wrong. K-A-I, yes. Is the Greek word kai. This word and right there in the Greek is translated not just in our English as and, but also as even. Meaning this even right here could also talk about that is, that is, which, which is the same as, I left the E off, same as. So if you, with that understanding in the Greek, God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, God our Father even from the Lord Jesus Christ, or God our Father that is the Lord Jesus Christ, you understand where we're going here? God the Father, which is the same as the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not talking about two persons. We're talking about one God, amen, one God. And as a matter of fact, if you look in your Bibles, you can open your, it, it's the good, I hope people still bring their Bibles to Bible study. Uh, it's kind of counterproductive if you don't. Uh, but if you look in your Bibles, probably almost in every Bible around here, let me see your Bible. Can I see your Bible? This is probably in here. He's got it right open over here. If we look at Ephesians, I'm going to go over here since you already got hers and I don't have to do all the work. All right. Ephesians, I look over here. Yours don't show it. Some Bibles do. They'll show the word from in italics. Show the word from in italics. And usually at the front of your Bible, if it shows, it'll tell you that if there's a word that's in italics, that was added by the translators of the King James Version Bible. That the translators added, it does in your Bible, that the translators added that, that word uh, thinking that they was going to help, if you will, uh, with the explanation of these things. But here's just another little tidbit. I'm, I'm, I'm still uh, hitting away at these are not two separate persons, all right? <clears throat> Whenever we consider this, this, this and right here, Notice, it says, from God our Father and from the, the word the is there in our English translations, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know you would have to look at a Greek, you know, Greek language in order to know this, but the word the is not there in the Greek. The Greek does have a word the, but it is not there in the Greek. In the Greek, it is just the Lord Jesus Christ in the Greek. Why is that so important? I'll tell you why that's so important. Because whenever it doesn't have that definite article, the, before the Lord Jesus Christ, this, this, this is something you wouldn't know if you didn't study it, okay? 
that in the Greek language, Greek rules say this, and I'm going to read it just to be absolute for sure for you. Greek rules say this. The definite article, when we talk about the definite article, we're talking about the, we're not just talking about a Lord Jesus Christ, the, a particular one, okay? The, the Lord Jesus Christ. The definite article must precede both nouns in order to indicate different persons, objects, or things. The the is not there before the Lord Jesus Christ, neither is it there before God our Father. And since it's not there, then it's not talking about two separate people, two separate objects, or two separate things. It would have to be the God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be talking about two distinct different persons. And it doesn't. All right? Everybody with me tonight? All right. I'm just making sure. Yes, we got to. You're arguing. I feel it coming on. No. Matthew said that. Matthew 28, 19. Matthew 28, 19. And actually, Matthew didn't say it. Matthew just recorded it. Matthew recorded it uh, back in Matthew 28, 19 that Jesus was speaking and he was uh, commissioning his disciples to uh, go forward and baptizing them. Uh, let me just read the scripture so we don't uh, go AWOL here. Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore, this is Jesus speaking, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name, in the name, in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Now, if I can just run around here just a little bit. The Bible tells us in Matthew 1, chapter 21. I'll write it down because we don't, of course, have this on screen because this is on the fly. Matthew 1, 21. The Bible says, and she shall bring forth a son. Are you, or is, is that good? Are you good then or do we need to go on? <laughs> yeah. And what I was about to go through is some scriptures to show you that the name of the Son was Jesus, the name of the Father was Jesus, the name of the Holy Ghost was Jesus. And anybody that's ever had a home Bible study with my wife and I have probably jumped through that hoop, especially it's been with me, because my wife tells me I throw in all kinds of extra scriptures that's not in that Bible study. But uh, anyway, okay. <clears throat> so, Grace and peace did not come from two distinct persons. They did not come from two distinct persons. They came from God, who is Father in the sense that he created you and I. Created all things. He's the source of all things. He's the Father of all things. So he's a Father in the sense that he is creator. So, uh, and then we see him likewise as the son of redemption for you and I in the one person that he was manifested in that Chronicles or Corinthians told us 519 God was in Christ or in 1 Timothy 316 that God was manifest in the flesh as Jesus Christ but that son of God was redemption for you and I. So much so that we even read in Ephesians that the book we're studying, Ephesians 1, 7 in whom, speaking of Jesus, in whom we have redemption through his blood, Jesus' blood. Because God does not have no blood. God don't have blood. God is spirit. God is spirit. 
John 4, 24. God is spirit, so God don't have no blood. Where'd the blood come from? The body that he was manifested inside of, which was Jesus Christ. So we had redemption through his blood. The body provided blood, amen, for our redemption. Because the Old Testament and New Testament harmonized, there is no, you, you, there's redemption by the shedding of blood. Well, you got to have blood in order to shed blood. And so the body of Jesus Christ provided the blood that was necessary to be shed in order for us to be redeemed. All right? So, yes, it all came from the Lord. Uh, Jesus Christ, God, amen. They are, they are God. They, they, it all, it's all in him. The old song you say, it's all in him, the fullness of the Godhead. It's all in him. Now, going on from that, I just had to clear that up. I had to get that off my chest, uh, nevertheless. But you'll see that terminology again and again. And, and stuff separated uh, sometimes by, uh, by ands and so on and so forth. And that's just for your, your, your information as you read the Bible to bring clarity for your reading. Uh, Paul, in, in writing the scripture back to Ephesians, back to our lovely book of Ephesians, he's emphasizing, he's emphasizing very greatly here all these spiritual blessings uh, that, that, that have come from that have come down, that have come to God's people, that have come to the church, all these spiritual blessings that have come. As a matter of fact, in verses you and just, uh, you know, highlight or mark for your own reference, but in verses 6 and 12 and, and verse 14, he uses this, this phraseology consistently. He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. At another spot, he says, to the praise of his glory. Then another one says, unto the praise of his glory. Amen. And he's constantly telling us to, to, to give glory and praise for everything that God's doing for us because it's in him, in Christ, that all spiritual blessings have come to you and I. And we think, man, Paul, you're kind of over the top here. You know, we're out of phrase. You know, you got more words in your vocabulary. You know, you constantly say, to praise to the glory of Christ, to praise. You're kind of over the top. But whenever we understand, listen, going back to our history from last week, when we understand again that the Ephesians worshiped the great goddess Diana and the temple of Diana, so much so, listen, so much so that in Acts 19, uh, whenever Demetrius the silversmith is a little upset because now people's hearts are turning from Diana toward the Lord and he was a silversmith and he made idols of Diana so people could take home, take home and put in their houses. Uh, it was his livelihood. That's how he made his living. See, whenever Paul started preaching Christ in Ephesians, it didn't just affect hearts, it affected their economy. Because people oftentimes went to the temple of Diana and in that little shrine behind there, there was like a little box and they would put their money and their gold and their precious things. You don't think the government in Ephesus was getting a kickback off that. So they bring in all their treasures, a very rich city, very profitable city. And so here the silversmith, man, he'd make idols. Diana's, man, the big thing and everybody's buying these things. He made his livelihood. And so they were all upset. They were going to bring a few people into the, the theater there and they were going to slay them. Man, they were hot under the collar. They were mad. And so a man stands up and he begins declaring some things and starts to settle down the crowd. And the Bible says in Acts 19 verse 34 that, listen folks, for two hours... It plainly says that. For two hours, those that were in that huge theater and stadium cried out, great is Diana, for two solid hours. To a pagan 
false god that had eyes and could not see, ears and could not hear, a mouth could not speak, could not intervene on their behalf whatsoever. But for two hours they worship and praise, saying, Great is Diana. You think Paul's being over the top whenever he's talking to the new Ephesian church then about how much blessing and praise and glory should be given to Christ for their new life? I think he's trying to relate to them that if you could give that type of praise and worship for two hours straight in a stadium to Diane, that is something that could never help you, never intervene for you, then how much more so should you do it for one that died, bled, and resurrected and can intermingle in the affairs of your life right now? Amen. So, man, I'm like, man, you know, conviction falls. Man, just meant you want to stand for two hours and say, great is our God. Great is our God. Now, you, we, you'd all think I was a, just dimwit out here if I came in. So I tell you what we're going to do tonight, folks. I want everybody to stand and lift their hands and just say, great is our God. And two hours from now, we'll dismiss church. Yeah. They did it for something that could not do anything for them. But this is why Paul was so important. He's lavishing the Lord with so much thanksgiving and blessing and praise right here in the beginning of this epistle. Amen. Because he's, he's teaching them by example. He's teaching them by example. I mean, he's lavishing this thing with praise and glory and honor. Yeah, but look what you did for your great goddess Diana. And he's working against a, a paradigm, a standard that had been set uh, for their community, been set in their life that they served this pagan God, but now they're serving the Lord. So now, look, look, look what he says. He says, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All. He didn't say a part, a portion, a segment. There's some delivered to you and then some allocated over here and we're just going to, you know, divvy this up. No, all is all. All spiritual blessings. He said, you didn't even find a segment or an iota of that in Diana, but now you, man, the curtain's been pulled back and it's all, all the spiritual blessings are available to you now because you're in Christ. Those who in Christ was what? They were nothing more but the good old church. Uh-huh, I can't even spell. C-H-U-R. The good old church. How about that? Look at this artistic ability. Those who are in Christ. Listen, that was, this epistle is not just good for the Ephesian church. It was good for all the churches that day. Sometimes they had these circular letters. We see in the book of Revelations a lot of those letters circled around the various churches. Man, this wasn't just for the Ephesian church. It was for churches. It's for our church. It's for First Apostolic Church. Amen. All spiritual blessings, amen, in heavenly places are in Christ. And you all that have been born again of the water and the spirit, guess where you're at? You're in Christ. As a result of that, all spiritual blessings, yours. Yours. So yeah, I might come in here and Bishop might kick his leg and other people might stomp the floor and do that. Why do you do all that? I did some of that whenever I served my other gods. Didn't we, Brother Terry? And sometimes more, sadly. Sometimes more. Just real quickly, Again, back to this understanding of this terminology that comes up a lot in the book of Ephesians. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. This is the word. Look at that. In Greek. I'm just going to paraphrase there or just abbreviate. In the Greek, 
that word in can actually be meaning that. Let me get down here so I can write. Instrumental, which basically means this. By means of is the translation. Or because of. It can also be what's called locative, which basically actually means in, like, you know, a position, you know, a position, actual location. No one can probably see that now. And then there's another, but this is what we really want to focus on here because different times, whenever you read in Christ throughout the book of Ephesians, you're going to see it, man, coming up big time, a lot of times. Whenever we read, for instance, let's find a scenario here in the Scripture in the one that we just read. Blessed be God the Father, verse 3, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Not just that we are positionally in Christ, but also it's by means of or because of Christ that we get the benefit of the spiritual blessings, all spiritual blessings. Now that other rendering of by means of or because of comes very important as you read continuously through Ephesians because at some of the points, the word in meaning an actual location is not going to make sense. It's not going to be make sense in that scenario. But this other by means of because of is. And so the way that it's used is going to be determined by how it's situated in the sentence, what makes sense. You know, it's just like, you know, words that are spelled the same that have two different definitions, all right, in our English language. How do you know that, you know, that that is what it, I'm trying to think of a word. Someone come on, throw it out. What's a word? Live in life. Two Two, yeah. Right, right, but I was thinking of a word that's spelled exactly the same. But anyway, you understand what I'm getting at. There are words that are spelled exactly the same but may have two different definitions. How do you know what definition to use? How it's used in the sentence. Likewise, very the same here. How do we know if it's in a position or in something by means of or because of? Well, you can probably read and start deciphering whether or not that makes sense, if it's actually in location-wise or if it's because of or by means of. And if you read Ephesians 1, has anybody even just read Ephesians any time over the past couple of weeks or a, poor, or a verse? He said, no, okay. Um, <clears throat> or maybe even a verse. But if you start reading even at chapter, verse 3 on, it almost, man, it's really burdensome. It's really wordy. Really kind of difficult, actually, sometimes. You start reading it. And as a matter of fact, they say that from 3 to 14 was one sentence in the Greek. One sentence. You want to talk about a run-on? <laughs> we got it here. And so that's the reason then why the content just even in, when it's brought to English is just seemingly a little hard to digest. Now, look. Look at verse number 4. According... Oh, boy, I tell you what, I'm not getting very far tonight. This might be one of those uh, 2A, 2B things. <clears throat> Verse 4 and 5. According as he hath chosen, everybody underline or bracket or write down, this is important, us in him. This is, this is important. Us in him. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. You, you, I mean, aren't you just kind of being hit right now by all the wording just already, just in those verses? According to the good pleasure of his will. Whew. Two verses, wow. One of the alls, the, the all and the wonder of our relationship with God is that he chose us. 
you know, I, I, you know, people say, well, I chose the Lord, you know, or I accepted Christ. <laughs> well, you'd never been able to accept him if he hadn't accepted you first. But some of the awe and the wonder, though seriously, is to think that God would choose humans, a person. We're frail. We make mistakes. We're the reason he was put on the cross to begin with. <laughs> Our sins and all that. So, you know, it's kind of a, one of those aha moments that it's just awe-inspiring to even believe that. John 15, 16, Sister McGee, if you help me, the Bible says, you have not chosen me, he says. He says, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father my name, he may give it you. Amen. And look at the reason why. I think it's important. Look at the reason why, why he chose us in verse number four. Back to verse four, verse Ephesians 1, 4, Sister McGee, I'll keep you tapping. Look why he chose this. That we should be holy. And without blame before him in love. That we should be holy. We brought up the word holy enough time you should know. It means different, separated, sanctified. He said, I chose you that you might be different. I chose you that you might be separated that you might be blameless. Blameless is a sacrificial word. In the Old Testament, where they brought their sacrifice to the Lord, what did they do? They kept it. They looked over it, made sure no uh, alteration in color of a hair came upon it, no disease. They wanted to make sure it was blameless. He said, I chose you so you might be blameless. Now, we can't do that in or of ourselves, but we can whenever we come to the Lord and take our righteousness off and put his righteousness on. Then we stand before the Lord blameless. <clears throat> Now, here's something I wanted to get to. We're keeping that up here. And this is going to take some time. Try and slow down right here. And I got about 14 minutes. And we're not going to get done. So here it is. There is a doctrine in our world today in certain sects of religion called the doctrine of election. the doctrine of election and from these verses right here in Ephesians and from some others from Romans is where from some of these stem a lot of people get hung up on worldwide church the idea of predestination predestination the word predestination but what is important to learn or know about predestination <clears throat> excuse me is that predestination needs to be understood in the context of verses 4 and 5. The key phrase for the predestination, and I'll put it over here so we know what we're talking about. Predestination. I'll let mom check that. She always did real well in spelling. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just taking a shot at her. We always do that to her. Um, predestination. The, the context in which this is very important is the us in him, the us in him. Because the us in him is referring to the church. It is not referring to one single individual or, indi or person. It is referring to a group of people. Us in him. The church. So when we understand that, that God 
ordained, look at your scripture, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holding without blame before him in love, having predestinated us, us who? Us who are in him, us who are the church, have predestinated the church. What was it? God, before the foundation of the world, understood that there was going to be a church. Yeah. Before the foundation of the world, God understood that there was going to be a church. Now, to look at what we're dealing with in our society, the doctrine of election, there are two different schools of thought. That are those who are, are uh, Calvinism-type people. Calvinism-type people believe this, that predestination refers to a person or individual, meaning God, before the foundation of the world, uh, already predestined this one or that one for heaven or hell, and there's nothing they choice that they can make to change it. All right, John Calvin brought that up through his lifetime. Then there is another school of thought called Arminianism. It is from another man, James Arminius, who holds to say that God, he chooses and he wants for people to serve him based upon their own decision of their will whatever they choose. He wants them. Mortal man has a choice to serve God, and he does so by whenever the convicting of God's presence comes upon him, he can either choose or not to choose to serve the Lord. So I want to point out, Ephesians is written to who? The church. Ephesians is written to people who are us, this is bad grammar, us in hymns. Ephesians is written to the church. The church, these are people who have already been, have repented their sins, been baptized in Jesus' name, and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. God, yes, is predestinating his church. Mm-hmm. People that's been born again in the water and the spirit, speak in tongues, have repented. He's predestinating his church. You can't change that. He has a plan and a purpose for his church. He has a plan and a purpose for his church. Let's go just a little further, a little deeper. I got nine minutes. I might be able to crack a note open here. I don't know. Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. These are other verses that are for these. I don't want to get rid of all this, but uh, let's get rid of that right there. Uh, I'll leave that up there. Here we go. For whom he did foreknow. Let me write down some key words here. For whom he did foreknow, he also did, I'll label them. We got this already up here. I don't have to write it twice. Predestinate or predestination. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, there's that word again, them he also called. Called. And then what did he do with the called? And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, he did what? Glorified. But let's start right here. For no. Does God have a knowledge of the future? Yes. Bible says he declared the end from the beginning. Declared the end from the beginning. Before man ever was created, God knew that man was going to fail. God knew that. He had a foreknowledge about that. As a matter of fact, at that time, before the creation of all things at the foundation of the world, God already had a foreknowledge about Calvary. Yeah. First Peter 1, Sister McGee. First Peter 1, 
in verse number 18, starting, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who barely was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Had a foreknowledge of it then, it just wasn't manifested until it was needed to be manifested. God foreknew a group of people that were us in him. God foreknew the church. He knew he was going to have a church. He knew there was going to be a church. God had a foreknowledge of there being a church. But listen very well. Having a foreknowledge that there was going to be a church does not affect or influence people being in or out of the church. Whenever we talk, okay, let's say this. Oh, we got colors up here. This is really going to get good here. I just don't have yellow. Oh, man, tell you what. I'm just going to have to do something here. My black is going to be yellow, but I probably even don't need it, okay? What do you think I'm drawing here? Stoplight. If you see a red stoplight, what type of foreknowledge do you have about what's going to take place? All right, but what's, what's going to happen next whenever that turns from, from, oh, I gave it away, from red? What's going to happen next? Green. It's going to turn green. As I'm approaching that, that red light, as I'm approaching that red light, Brother Fred, I have a foreknowledge that it's going to turn green. But that foreknowledge, no way influences that thing to turn green. It does it of its own accord. My foreknowledge of that doesn't influence that. It doesn't make it happen. Everybody understand what I'm saying? It does not make it happen. And so God's foreknowledge of the church as a whole, the church, a group of people, does not by no means then mean that he's saying, well, I'm making this one be a part of the church and that one be a part of the world. You still got a choice. You still got a choice. Let's go to step two. My step two, and I've got to get my right colors here. Here's step two. It comes down right in here. Back to predestination. To predestine means this. To foreordain, to determine in advance, to plan ahead of time with no possibility of alteration. This is very important to denote. I even use a different color for it. Foreknow, listen, deals with whom? Predestination deals with the plan or the purpose. What did it say in Romans? It said, for whom he did for no. Now, whenever it's referring to whom in the scripture, right here in the book of Romans, this whom, listen to me, is not a single, here comes my great artistic ability, is not a single person. Because that word whom in Romans 8, 28, 29 rather, that word whom, is in the plural form 
in that verse. So we're not talking about a individual. We're talking about, again, a group of individuals. More particularly that we even draw from Ephesians, us in hymns, the church. All right? So, so the church, might I say, the church he did foreknow. Also, he did predestinate. Also, he did predestinate. Not a person. He's predestinating the whom, but the whom's not a single person. The whom's a group of people. The whom is the us and hymns. The whom is the church. He predestinates the church. What, what, what does he do this for? Here's where predestination goes to plan and purpose. The whom is concerning the foreknowledge, but the plan and purpose is the predestination. What's the plan, God? What's the purpose? If we're destined for something, what's the plan? If we're destined to go somewhere, what's the plan? What's the steps? What's the purpose? Here it is. He said, for the church to be conformed into the image of his son, that we would become like Jesus. And here's our big election, you know, our big doctrine of election. It's not that you're chose from the beginning of the world and you, Brother Terry, you're going to hell and Sister Rhonda, you're going to heaven. Oh, God, help us all, you know. <laughs> and you can't do anything in your life to change it. That's not it. It's that God knew from the beginning of time he was going to have a church. He was going to have a church. And for that church, he was going to have a plan. He predestined that church to be just like Jesus predestined that church to walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, live like Jesus, be obedient like Jesus. He predestined the church to do so. But then with all of this that's taking place, man, I'm almost getting happy around here. Look, in Romans, he's speaking of the church being predestined to conform to the image of his son. In Ephesians, that church is predestined unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. We're predestined to become sons of Jesus, sons and daughters of God. Amen, what we're predestined for in Ephesians. So predestination deals with the plan and the purpose. God's not predestining, amen, you for somewhere, but if you're a part of the church, he's predestining the church if you're a part of it. So you understand what I'm saying? It's not directly you, but if you're a part of the church, then the church as a whole, not a person, the church has a plan. The church has a target. The church has, God's just not leaving us out there just wandering and just around. We have no idea what we're doing. Where we know God has a purpose for the church. And if you decide to be a part of the church, God has a plan for your life. Yes. Mm hmm. So he doesn't predestine a person, an individual. As a matter of fact, predestination only applies to groups, and there's only two groups he predestines. Listen to me. There's only two groups. One is the church, us in him. Guess what the other is? Let's do it like this, us out of him. He predestines two groups, not a million individual people, Two groups. He has a destiny for the church, those that are in him, and he has a destiny for those that are not a part of him. We have to get a bigger board. <laughs> so with that being said then, we... Oh, I just erased part of what I still needed. 
we have still a free will of choice to be a part of the church or not be a part of the church. If you decide to be a part of the church, you're predestined for a plan and a purpose because the church is predestined for something. If you're not part of the church, those that are among them that are out of Christ are predestined for a destination. But you're making the choice which one you want to be a part of. So, because, the, see, the idea is some people get in the mind then, well, then I'm destined for heaven, I'm destined to hell. I might as well just live however. Do whatever. Because it's all just going to just line up, just right, twist around when it needs to for me to be where I need to be because I'm already going to, that's the way it's, that's the way it is. Not so. You have a choice to be a part of the church or not a part of the church. When you're a part of the church, he's got your flight planned if you stay in it. Uh-huh. You know what the sad part is? We got, we got the great clouds of glory. We got rapture someday over here. I cannot spell rapture over here. We got rapture. Woo! Here's the church trudging along to the rapture. Hallelujah. Here's those not in the church. They're going that same way. Uh, you know what happens? Man, I decide my life. I'm going to be right here. I'm destined for heaven. We're destined. Well, I'm destined for heaven. But along this journey prior to rapture, you know what I do sometimes? What do I do? I'm here. I'm here. By the own choice of your will, you sometimes, we've seen it, people vacillate back and forth between part of the church and part being not part of church. And what happens? Their predestination changes anytime they change their mind. God didn't just put a straight line for them and that's, there's no variation. Uh-uh. We're constantly making the choices. We just hope that whenever it comes rapture day, we made the right choice. And here's something that's so amazing about God. You want to talk about being awed and wondered by God? What happened whenever they was going out looking for people to work in the vineyard? Those that went out in the early morning, man, they're getting, they're working the vineyard, if we could call it the church. They're working in it, man, they're diligent. Toward the end of the day, somebody, toward the end of the day, somebody comes in, guess what? They both get the same reward because they have the same destination. That is not a loophole, though, to live like however you want to live because no man knows the day or the hour whenever this right here is going to take place. I would hate to jump ship at the moment that rapture took place because there's a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell, Scripture says. Wow, I'm way over. Oh, it's only 8.10, though. You got me up here early. Well, we got 20 more minutes. Is everybody all right, though? Okay. I still got a few little numbers over here and one got erased I don't know who did that <clears throat> so let's see if we can just kind of bring this around God knew he's going to have a church he predestined that church he had a plan and a purpose for that church in Romans he talks about it being conformed to the image of his son in Ephesians an adoption and notice in Romans in particular that after this has taken place the Bible says in verse, verse uh, 30 moreover whom he did predestinate, who did he predestinate? The church, those who are us and him, those he, he predestinate, them he also called. God knew he was going to have a church and he was going to have a plan for the church. And since he had all that staged and planned, he makes a call. But guess what? The call is not for one here and one there. The call is for everyone. 
the call is for everyone. It's the call of John 7, 37, that in that last great day of the feast, he said, if any man. He didn't just say Jews or just this one or that one. He, he, there wasn't no selection. If any man thirst, let him come and drink of the water. And the Bible says this spake he of the Holy Ghost. Amen. But it, it's any man. Now, here's the thing. We got two different people, you know. One's going to accept the call. One's going to reject the call. That puts this person church this one not in the church that puts this one in a direction and this one in a direction but the call comes from he is not just again underscore he's not just calling us whoever he, he's got a selective mode here we'll call them and not call them. no 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 the Bible says it's not his will that any should perish but all would come unto repentance well the calls being made but the choice is still yet yours you have a free will so he calls and look the ones if I could say it like this the ones who accept the call to be us in him the church they become the chosen Bible said many are called but few are chosen the chosen are the ones that accept the call all right so then they become the chosen and the Bible then sums it up after he is called he said, whom he called, them he also justified. We're not going to get in deep here. In other words, he justifies them. He counts them as righteous. Some was it low down, good for nothing, dirty, or, mm, 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 and a few other words. No. <laughs> I joke. He, 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 he now brings them and he justifies them. He counts them as righteous. Where they, where they were dirty, now they're clean. Where they were impure, they're now they're done. And then the last thing he does was this one, if you can still see it very vaguely, <laughs> is that whom he justifies he glorifies. You know what? Glor glorification is kind of the capstone of the building because we're not there yet. It's hap it'll happen on rapture day because we'll get a glorified body, a new body, a sinless body. Amen. The Bible says in 1 John 1, verse 7, Sister McGee, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and that is not the verse I really wanted. <laughs> it's a good one, though. Man, I botched that one. The Bible says it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know we shall be like him, and we shall know him as he is. That's what the Scripture says, and it is in 1 John, but not 1 verse 7. <clears throat> That's a good one, though. It really is. I'd probably put it, let me see if it was in Second John, just for the case of it. No. Well, folks, if you read First John, you'll find it. But it's escaping my memory right now exactly which one it is. Evidently escaped my memory then too, didn't it? <clears throat> but glorification will happen at the end of all times because we're not glorified yet. I know sometimes we have episodes we think we are, but we're not glorified yet. I'm looking for whenever the Bible says that... Uh, we, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we shall be like him. And that will be a sinless, amen, body. Um, huh? First John 3, 2, thank you, Sister McGee. I know I married you for more than one reason. Back up one more time here. Is everybody doing okay? Okay. 
I'm almost having too much fun doing this. We might start doing this every Wednesday. Huh? This brings about so much. Whenever I was a young boy, Pastor Sizemore used to bring out a huge chalkboard that pivoted on the side, and you could flip it over and everything. He'd write on one side, flip, do the other side. And that's, this is what I grew up in. This is what I knew, man. You just had Bible study. And so that was just, maybe we can get dry erase board big when it flips or something. I don't know. <clears throat> Consider again us in him, okay? Particularly what Ephesians was speaking about, how we are predestined as a church unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. There's a little uh, history and customs that I'd like to share with you that kind of brings us a little bit more uh, to life. Because in the ancient world, during the time of the Ephesians, uh, many of the, all of them was prevailing under Roman law. And as a result of that, uh, the family was based upon uh, something that was known as the father's power. The family was based upon the father's power. And so under Roman law, a father of a family or a father of a home had absolute power over his children so long as they lived. Meaning, if they got married and had a spouse, that father still had power over that son. It's father's rule, father's power. In so much that a father could sell his kid, Someone's saying, man, I wish we had the Roman world today. I'm here today. <laughs> Bring it on back. <laughs> they could sell their children. They could kill their kid if they wanted to. Wouldn't have to, be, wouldn't have to be subjected to the law because Roman law said the power's the father's. The power's the father's. So he had the right of life and death over his children, over his sons. So in this, a son then, even if he got married and uh, he had some land, had an ox, had a few things. He really didn't possess them. Guess who, guess who really possessed them? Daddy. Father's power. Anything that was willed to the son, given to him from some other inheritance, it went to dad. It was father's power. Property, father's power. But during that time frame, when a person was adopted, whenever they were adopted, into a new family. That child had all the rights, listen, of a legitimate son in his new family. More importantly than that, so here's what happened. He was under the father's power in this family. Whenever he was adopted into this family, he became under the father's power in this family. How many knows that all fathers ain't the same? In the natural, but whenever you think concerning the spiritual that the Apostle Paul is speaking of. So while you've been in this family, you've been under a certain father's power. But when you've been born again, you're under a new father's power. <laughs> and not just that, you've lost all your rights in your old family because you got new established rights in your new family. And by the law, Roman law, listen to me, folks. This is amazing to me. According to Roman law, in the eyes of the law, that son was a new person when they were adopted by another family. They were a whole new person in so much that if they had any debts over in the old family, if they got in the new family, they didn't even have a debt anymore. It was canceled, goodbye, gone, never was even there. 
whenever you got adopted into the new family. It was though as if it never exists. You know what? That's an important concept for this new infant church at Ephesians. Amen. Because all of their oak connections, the goddess Diana with Diana. Amen. They're, they're, they're serving Diana. You know, but whenever they were born again, they were a new person. All the connections that they had with Diana, they're gone. The debts that they had there. Mm-hmm. The debts that they had there, they are gone. They are a new person in Christ Jesus because they've been adopted into a whole new family. And they're underneath a different father's power. Woo! I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm glad I have a new daddy. No offense to my natural father, by no means. Whew. Might get a spanking right here in front of everybody. Hang tight with me just for a few moments. I got 10 minutes according to my clock. This is the longest that I've probably ever, well, maybe not. But, um, we're not even going to talk about that. Overall, overall, the Ephesians was a very prosperous group of people because of their goddess Diana bringing that goods and stuff to the shrine and, and, and the little gods that they made. They were a very prosperous group of people. And so they had a lot of material gain because of the temple of Diana. Uh, people giving their valuables. Demetrius, we have already talked about him, the silversmith. He made his livelihood by selling these idols and such. He said his craft, uh, you know, was by that type of wealth in Acts 19. So there was a pretty prosperous group of people. And Paul's preaching in Ephesus now. And uh, it turned the hearts. Yes, the economy went through the floor. It hurt the economy. It hurt people's livelihood. And so now in the book of Ephesians, you'll notice as you read the book of Ephesians, Paul many times is talking about the riches in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the riches of God. Not, not, not material riches, amen, but some spiritual riches in Christ Jesus. For instance, here's some of the phrases that he uses in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1.7. He says, according to the riches of his grace. Chapter 1, verse 18, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 7, the exceeding riches of his grace. Chapter 3, verse 8, I like this one, the unsearchable riches of his grace. In other words, you can get in my daddy's safe and plunder around all day and you've not seen all his riches. They're unsearchable. The unsearchable riches of grace. Uh, chapter 3, verse 16, according to the riches of his glory. Again, we understand then. The Ephesians have just plummeted economically because they've turned toward God. But Paul's trying to tell them, whatever you lost in material goods, you're going to get it surpassing in spiritual things. The riches of God's grace. And I'll close with this. I'll shut up with this. There was a distraught wife that sought out a Christian marriage counselor and told her sad, sad story of a marriage that was about to dissolve. She says, but we have so much. She kept saying, look at this diamond on my, on my finger. Why, it's worth thousands. I have three cars and even a cabin in the mountains. Why, we have everything money can buy. The counselor replied, it's good to have the things money can buy provided you don't lose the things money can't buy. That was, in essence, really the word of wisdom of Paul to the Ephesians. You might have lost some things that money could buy, but you've gained some things that money couldn't buy. Why? Because we're us in him. We're the church. And he has extended to us all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in 
Christ. If you'll stand with me tonight and thank you for making this long journey. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.